Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians 6 this morning. Galatians 6, starting in chapter 11, actually. We're in a new sermon series on the cross of Jesus. And last week I made the claim that many of us view the cross of Jesus like we view the cars that we drive. We depend on the cross. We may even consider ourselves to be cross-centered. But hardly any of us know why the cross does what the cross does. And so we're seeking to understand the cross of Jesus together. Not in a way that removes mystery, but in a way that respects and honors what God does have to say about the cross of Jesus. And well, last week we began our journey with an overview, and we saw how too many of us have a cross that is too small. And we tried to recover the many truths about the cross that God says about it in His Word. And generally speaking, we saw that there are four major truths, major truth clusters even, around which the cross uh, speaks to. And on the cross we see these four things, that Jesus is our representative. We see that Jesus is a victor. We see that Jesus is a substitute. And we see, yes, even Jesus as an example. And these four truths are like strings on a ukulele, let's say. Often in the church, we only pluck one of those strings. But they're meant to be played together. There are not just melodies that God has for us, but there are harmonies that God has for us when it comes to the cross of Jesus. And if we single out one string, not only will we miss out on all that God has for us, But we can also distort the other truths about the cross. And more on this down the road, but that's the journey we're on this late spring and summer. This morning, we're going to largely explore the first string. Jesus as a representative. And to do this, we're going to look at the final chapter of Galatians. First thing that might surprise us, if you take a look down at the text that we're about to read out loud here. The first thing that might surprise you about this passage is the first sentence where Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing you, with my own hand. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but many of Paul's letters were not penned by Paul. They were written by Paul. But many of them were recited to somebody who would actually pen them recited them to a scribe. It was a common practice in those days. But apparently Paul grabs the pen. He grabs the stylus. And he writes with these large letters. And people wonder why. But the most likely explanation is that Paul wants to emphasize what is about to be said. It's like whenever you're reading an email and you see somebody write something with all caps, which is a very rare thing. And when you see it, it does arrest your attention. That's essentially what Paul is doing. This for Paul, the apostle, is all caps. 
theology. We admit mystery, but what follows, according to the apostle, should be crystal clear. I'll read and you can follow along, starting in verse 11. Galatians 6. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and Holy Spirit, with this time before the word that you breathe, the one in which we see and encounter the risen Jesus, so that our hearts would worship, that our minds would not just learn, but that our hearts would worship, that our hearts would even sing of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, about seven years ago, my dad invited me to go to Zion National Park. Uh, but that was a few months before his stage 4 cancer diagnosis. And so we went back to the drawing board. And we decided instead to drive to Chicago. To see a few Cubs games at Wrigley. That seemed way more doable. But it was also way more personal. Because before we drove into Chicago, we stopped along the way at a small town called Campus, Illinois. Campus is not a city. Campus isn't really even a town. It's technically, according to Wikipedia, a village. It's a village of no more than 200 people. But today, if you were to walk through the single cemetery they have in Campus, Illinois, you would see quite a few hacks on the tombstones. And that's my last name, if you haven't met. We walked through the graveyard as a crop duster, I kid you not, was flying overhead. And I saw firsthand how this small village where so many of the former generations of my family lived. I've always heard stories about these folks, but I've always thought, what do they have to do with me? What do they have to do with me? I actually, zero interest in their life and in my family heritage. But it wasn't until I saw the home. It wasn't until I saw the barbershop that my great-great-grandfather opened with a pool hall in the back. It wasn't until I saw the church where many of them were baptized in. It wasn't until, yes, I saw their gravestones that I realized that their life has everything to do with my life. I wouldn't be here if not for them. I'm linked whether I realize it or even appreciate it, with their lives. Now, scholars have a word to describe my struggle to connect 
my life to their life. And that word is hyper-individualism. All throughout history, we can see societies tending to swing from one extreme to the other. Some societies are hyper-collective where the individual is erased. And other times, societies can be hyper-individualistic where any sense of obligation or connectedness to the collective is erased. And it may not shock you, but that's, that's closer to where we are in these days. Hyper-individualism. We don't really see ourselves as bound up in the lives of others, do we? Some folks, they like to prove this point by pointing to a simple statistic. An increase in traffic violations. Which is impossible to dispute. It's happening. And so there's a CNN article that actually says this. It's not just your imagination. This is the title. Drivers in the pandemic have gotten more reckless. Can I get an amen? It's impossible to prove for sure what the causation is to all this. But the logic according to these folks is like this. As you and I become more individualistic, yes, even more hyper-individualistic, uh, as we become more like this in a society, the more likely it is that I will run a stop sign. The more likely it is that I will say, who cares to sort of the social contract of driving responsibly around other people? Because I have to go to Costco. <laughs> and I'm running late. And we can all think of other examples of hyper-individualism. We can think about our political discourse. We can think about our social media habits. We can think about even the fact that for most of us, we know the name of our neighbor's car, but not the name of their child. We live in a hyper-individualistic age. It's just true. The rally cry of our hearts that comes so naturally is, what does that person over there have to do with this person right here? Well, this presents a huge problem when we think about the cross of Jesus. And we need to deal with it first. We need to deal with it at the headwaters of our journey this summer. Because if hyper-individualism is our default, then we will have trouble connecting our lives to the cross. After all, what does the death of somebody who died 2,000 years ago have to do with it? me or us? How is his victory my victory? How is that even meaningful? How, is, how, is it mean, how can my guilt meaningfully be transferred to him? And his righteousness meaningfully transferred to my life? How is that even possible if I'm disconnected from other people? Again, what is that over there? have to do with me. Well, the cross of Jesus is a lot of things we're going to explore, but one thing we will see this morning is that it is a stick of dynamite to hyper-individualism. Now, the cross does not work. The Bible doesn't even make sense if hyper-individualism is true. See, right away, in Genesis, we see the actions of our parents in the Garden of Eden have everything to do with you and with me. And this doesn't really seem fair on first blush. If you really sit and think about it, it doesn't seem fair. But it's the baseline assumption of the entire Bible. To borrow a phrase, there is a bound upness between 
Adam's life and our life. Adam's rebellion and our rebellion. Adam's death and our death. And it's not like each generation, as they're born, it's a fresh start after this fall that we read about in Genesis 1 and in 2. It's not like when you mess up in Super Mario Brothers and you get just a brand new start. No, once our parents in the garden sink, everybody after them sink. And once again, that doesn't seem fair in a hyper-individualistic age. And that is the bad news of the Bible. It offends us. We didn't have a vote on this. We weren't in Eden that day. So why do we, and why did their actions impact us? So, ascension to who we are. But strangely, if that's the bad news, it's also the good news of the Bible. Uh, because Paul, for instance, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Think about sharing in Christ's life, sharing in Christ's abundance, sharing in Christ's inheritance is also a very unfair thing in a hyper-individualistic age. But that's the scandal of the gospel. In the same way that we are bound up in Adam, to those who lay hold of Jesus with empty hands, we are bound up in Christ. The word that theologians like to use to describe this is federalism, which means representation, representative. Like how the federal government is representative. Apparently God decided to interact with us in this way. To quote one theologian, God designed the world so that human destiny would hinge upon the faithfulness of just one man acting on the behalf of many. On the behalf of. Representation. We see this on full display, not just in our text this morning that we just read, but really throughout the entire letter of Galatians. So for Paul, the cross of Jesus is historical, but it is way more than a historical event. Paul understands, and he wants you to understand, he wants all of us to understand, that when Jesus died on the cross, something happened to us too. What exactly? Well, we're going to focus on two things this morning, and the first is this. Our former self was crucified on that day. Let that just sink in. Or explode the brain. Or whatever metaphor you want to use. Because that's hard to wrap your mind around. But it's exactly what Paul says. And to see this, I want to turn back a few chapters to chapter 2, verse 20 in Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 20, listen to what the Apostle says. And he says this with a straight face. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
for me. Now notice a couple things that Paul says about the cross just in this one sentence, this one thought chunk. Number one, it was profoundly personal, the cross. Paul says, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. So what happened on the cross is not impersonal, and it certainly wasn't forced on Jesus. No, God is triune, a happy, eternal community of three in one, who longs to draw you into himself. And God the Son, Jesus, gladly, according to this verse, gladly and by his own volition, by his own choice, gave himself up for that to happen. It was personal. And number two, it's decisive. This is more on point for us this morning. Paul says, on that day, Jesus was nailed to a cross, but so also was Paul. And all that Paul was in Adam was put to death. So that the life he now lives, he lives where? In Christ. There was a transfer of representation that happened 2,000 years ago. In Adam, in Christ. So history books tell us Jesus died 2,000 years ago on the cross. And that is true. What they will not tell you is that 2,000 years ago, all of God's people, in a sense, did as well. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.